Hey, it's Andrew, and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Did you know that you can subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts to have new episodes delivered to your feed twice a week on Wednesday and Friday? All you have to do is pick up your phone, navigate to your podcast app, and search for Door County or Door County Pulse podcast and click subscribe. If you're a longtime listener or if this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy the Door County Pulse podcast. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. Who else would you be joined by? Well, anybody else on the on the Pulse team? <laughs> yeah. uh, usually these Friday ones, it's you and me, but yep. uh, it's not always. Not we, always. We've not a always. couple of special ones. Since it is Friday, uh, we're going to run through the news. We have a couple stories that we want to talk about, some updates to some previous stories that we've mentioned before, some new things. Let's start off with a bit of sad news, kind of a bit of scary news. There was uh, a man who was working on the power lines recently in Door County, and he was uh, shocked by the power lines. As best I can gather, a man was working on the power lines near the AC tap for a subcontractor of Wisconsin Public Service. They are doing upgrades to their electrical grid. Uh, anybody who's been in Northern Door lately has seen a lot of flagging operations as they've replaced old telephone poles and old lines. And when this is all finished, it's a multi-year project, outages will be less frequent and less severe for people. But a 27-year-old man working on that project for a subcontractor of WPS, I believe it's called MJ Electric, was shocked while working on the power lines, as best I can gather. And first responders got there within minutes of the call. It was quite remarkable. Call came in at 4.19 p.m. First responders were on the scene at 4.25, so six minutes out of Sister Bay. They had him packed up on the way to the hospital within four minutes. And then by 4.55, he was in a chopper heading to Green Bay. The gentleman, uh, as I can gather... Uh, there were rumors that someone was killed right away. He was not killed. He's got severe injuries, obviously, but uh, the last I could gather was responsive and awake. So I, attempts to reach the, the subcontractor were unsuccessful, but in talking to local emergency officials and just getting the, the bare bones of what they're allowed to release in this instance, that's kind of the outline. One thing talking to Aaron LeClaire of the Door County EMS services, he's like, I will run into a burning building. I will uh, like respond to a shooting. But he's like, man, you couldn't pay me enough to work on those power lines. He said, that is a dangerous, scary job. Something like that puts it into perspective when you go up and down these highways all the time and you see the flagging operations and you're impatient. And, you know, some people speed by and, and go really close to those workers. They're doing some really dangerous work that even as I see it and I hate seeing them cut down the trees and things like that, but like they're doing work to upgrade the things that we use every single day. Right. That we take for granted. And, yeah. And we take for granted those moments when you're driving. And like you said, you're like, oh man, got to wait for them to flip the sign around so I can go again. And it's like, oh well, my gosh, one minute. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, sidebar, something that we had talked about uh, while we were kind of just talking about this before we started the podcast, you mentioned when you were writing the story about this, that. The word electrocuted implies a fatality, and that's not something that I knew beforehand. I was not aware of that either until talking to Matthew Cullen of the Wisconsin Public Service, 
Uh, and I said, I, I'm calling about the man who was electrocuted. He said, well, injured. We are aware of a, a man who was injured working for a subcontractor of ours. Electrocuted implies that the person was killed. So I had to go look that up. And sure enough, it does imply that the person was killed. I don't think the common parlance would say that. But yeah, by definition, that means you were killed or by some definitions, it right. means you were killed. So electrocution so. is referring to a fatality. But not from being electrocuted, because that's the word. So from being shocked. It's one of the funny things about doing this job is you're always learning because your job is different every day, depending on the story you're reporting on. And so even for this, which turns out to be a very short story, but, you, you know, in this case, you end up calling two different fire chiefs, the EMS director, the Wisconsin Public Service, trying to contact the company that the man worked for, all just to get like the bare bones outline and the sheriff's department. Sometimes it's confusing on who is the reporting agency in an instance like this. And all that like work to write 300 basic words. Uh, one thing Aaron LeClaire also did say is it's extremely rare to respond to anything where someone was uh, injured through electric shock, whether it be a power outlet at home or something on the power lines. He said there's only been a couple in his years with the emergency services. So wow. luckily, it's not very common. So, Miles, this weekend is the Peninsula Century Fall Challenge. You've been doing a lot of work getting ready for this. How are things moving along in the process right now? We're recording this on Wednesday. The race is on Saturday. Where are you at in getting things ready? I'll do my Brian Fitzgerald impression. Brian Fitzgerald is the director of the event. Not a race, but a ride. (laughs) Okay. And uh, I, I always say race, too, and Brian always corrects me. So we do have a competitive element. So the the Fall Challenge is... A bike ride based out of Sister Bay. We do it out of Waterfront Park. It was born out of the idea of when Sister Bay built Waterfront Park, Brian was like, we should really do an event that uses this park and celebrates it and brings a bunch of people here. So they launched this fall challenge ride. And and Brian is a a huge cyclist. At times in my life, I've been a very avid cyclist and unfortunately not so much the last few months. They're in the 100-mile portion of the ride, we do have a competitive element called the King of the Hills Challenge, where we take three different hills and riders record their time on a GPS app. It's called it's actually called Ride with GPS. And it actually allows us to time them on those very particular segments, and we can extract that data and then add them up. And then people can see how fast they climb these three of the bigger hills in Northern Door County. There's one on Monument Point Road in Carlsville. There's one on Lakeview Road in Ellison Bay. And then there's the climb from the bottom of the Ephraim Hill heading south all the way up to what used to be the location of Eagle Tower. And we add those together and we give people prizes. The overall winners can go home with like a King of the Hills jersey. This is kind of a common thing for cycling events to do. So it's just a fun way for us to do in the midst of this kind of casual fun ride for those competitive cyclists to see what they got and charge those hills. And Door County's hills are no joke. I've done a century ride out on the eastern shore of Maryland where it was flat as a pancake. And I was like, oh, that was great. That wasn't too bad. And then I, you go out and try to ride 40 miles in Door County. And you're like, oh, this is tough. I'm glad that there's a competitive element to it now because you say that it's a fun, casual ride, but it's called the Fall Challenge. Yeah. So I'm like, wait a minute. Which one is it? Is it a challenge or is it fun? Well, it is a challenge. I mean, we tried to design the 25-mile route so that it's kind of a a flatter entry-level route for people who aren't as serious or maybe are serious, but they just want like kind of an easy, I want to get outside, I want to do this ride, I want to have some great food. 
but I don't want to do this crazy long route. And then the other three distances, 50 miles, 62 miles, and 100 miles, they all have a lot more hills and the competitive element because anytime you go along the shoreline in Door County, you're going to hit some of those bluffs and you're going to have to get up them and down them. Right. Well, that's a good thing to mention too, is that there's multiple different courses that you can elect to ride in Yeah, uh, for all different skill levels. Yeah. You don't have to be an experienced hardcore cyclist. You don't have to be somebody who goes out and does these group rides and knows all the ins and outs of doing a group ride. All you got to do is know the basic safety rules of the road and cycling, which are stop at the stop signs. We remind our cyclists over and over again before they go out in our emails that we want them to give cyclists a good name in Door County and stop at the stop signs and signal. And legally, they don't have to go single file, but we tell them if there is traffic present, try to go single file and give cars a way to get around you, just like you would want if you were behind the wheel. And we also encourage drivers to not be jerks. I mean, the onus on the roads, everybody has to be defensive on the roads. If you're in a car, you're the one driving 3,000 pounds of metal. The cyclist is riding on a 15 to 20 pound piece of metal that if they make a bad decision, they're probably going to hurt themselves. Whereas if, you're, if you make a bad decision or aren't paying attention in a car, you very likely can kill somebody. So there's a little more onus on the driver to be smart, in my mind. Well, but I mean, yeah, we try to remind everybody about the safety components of it because it's a busy time of year. We take our riders, we design the routes so that they don't go down Main Street in the middle of the day. If we hit a town, we have them hit it really early. And we take them on the back roads. The rules of the road are really important to remember, too, because bicycles are vehicles. And yeah. they are subject to the same rules. And But that goes both ways. So, and the same rights. Right. They have a right to the road. I mean, if the roads you, were not built for cars. They were built for horses and buggies. Right. If you're in a car, you need to understand that the bicyclists in front of you, they're a vehicle. And you need to treat them the same way that you would treat any other vehicle. Right. right. On the other side of it, if you are on the bike and there's a car in front of you or behind you, you have to remember, too, that you are a vehicle still, and you need to respect the rules of the road both ways. If you stop thinking about it as being like cars and bikes and more just being like, we're all vehicles up here, then it's a lot easier to figure out what is acceptable for, you know, how to do things. And I think if you're a non-cyclist, you probably have in your head this image of a cyclist with our spandex shorts and our bike jersey and a super competitive guy on an expensive bike who can often be jerks. Like, I've written a lot of stories about cyclists. I've talked to guys who said, like, yeah, when it's road cycling season, I don't know why, but I turn into a bit of a jerk. But then when I'm on the mountain bike, I'm a, kind of a different guy. And I think a lot of people would probably say that. But when you're driving and you see these cyclists, the reality is most of these people are casual riders. And a lot of them, uh, you know, I'm 40. A lot of these could be your parents out on the road because 30% are over the age of 60 probably 50% are over the age of 45. So these are adults, parents, grandparents. We had somebody last year, a grandfather, 80 years old, finish the century ride with his granddaughter. It's an awesome thing to see. For the most part, these are people who are trying to find a way to stay active that their body can still take on and that keeps them outside and, and enjoying the outdoors and keeps them in shape. So it's a really good thing. So I guess just keep in mind like who all these riders are. These are just your neighbors, your parents, your kids, your friends. So, How many people are coming up to participate in the, the fall challenge this year? There will be over 700, we expect. Uh, right now, we have over 600 registered. Uh, the weather looks really great for Saturday as of today. It's Door County. Who knows? Yeah, the weather looks great. So we could see anywhere from one to 200 more people sign up the day of. 
Cool. If you haven't signed up yet, can you still You register? can still sign up. Uh, so when this comes out Friday, you can still sign up at Packet Pickup Friday night at 4 to 7 at Waterfront Park. And then, again, you can even sign up Saturday morning, 6 to 9 a.m. It's really easy to sign up and takes just a couple minutes. Cool. Awesome. Well, if you're anticipating participating or if you uh, are just hearing about it now and you want to join in, make sure you come by and jump on a bike and have some fun. What's the reward at the end? We have a post-ride meal. Time Catering is doing a taco buffet. We have dessert with it's a cherry crisp from Sequist Orchards and ice cream from Door County Ice Cream Factory. One Barrel Brewing Company will be there serving beer and Papua kombucha. And then Frank Maloney will be on the pavilion playing tunes. Awesome. I might bike it just for the party at the end. The food is good. Well, Miles, why don't we take a break, and then when we come back, we have a couple more things I want to talk about. First up, proposed renderings for the Granary's new look have been released online. We should talk about that a little bit as we continue our Granary coverage. There's been updates to the Gills Rock shoreline, so we want to talk about that as well. So see you here in a bit. The podcast this week is brought to you by Brilliant Marketing Communications. Introducing Brilliant Sound Sessions, a free discussion series casually facilitated by the folks at Brilliant Marketing Communication. Locals can share ideas and get advice on marketing from each other and professionals. Brilliant Sound Sessions will take place the second Tuesday of every month at the Brilliant Marketing Communication Office in Sturgeon Bay. Kit Coffee Roasters are kicking in the coffee, and space is limited, so please RSVP. Details at brilliantmktg.com or on Facebook. Listen, exchange, grow together, drink free coffee. Okay, we are back. So, Miles, a concept rendering for what the Granary is proposed to look like has come out online. There's been press releases shown off. Christy Weber was sharing it on Facebook. Did you get a chance to look at the renderings? Yeah, I would describe them as preliminary. They're kind of renderings from La Dalman Architects, which is the firm that they hired to do some of the design planning. They also have a Silman Engineers working on it. And now what they just announced is that Smet Construction will be the general contractor for the project as it gets off the ground. For those looking from the outside in, like myself, it is a little confusing because Sturgeon Bay's waterfront plan came out a couple months ago. And that plan kind of has some open park space in the middle of the property on the west waterfront. And it proposed moving the granary to a different portion of that property. So that plan is in motion. That is, that is not like a set in stone plan by any means, but that is kind of like the concept that the council and city has approved. Meanwhile, you have the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society working on the granary in its original site and planning for it based right there. How these two mesh at some point, it remains to be seen. Sturgeon Bay Historical Society is moving forward based on the granary being in its original home. But if the city wants to move it, they're going to have to pay to move it and then likely pay for most or all of the renovation because the donation that's tied to it right now, the Historical Society's agreement with the city requires that it stay in its original home. So there's a lot of question marks on kind of like how solid these renderings are. That's all to say that's where we're at with the rendering that came out. A very basic one. It didn't have a ton of interior explanations. It's admittedly from the Historical Society a concept idea. They don't know exactly what the city is going to decide to do with the grounds around it, so they didn't include a lot of hard and fast things for the surrounding areas. It's just like a picture of the granary. It's challenging in a lot of ways because on one hand, 
being in their position, I don't envy their position at all because they've got a lot of people saying, you know, what is this place going to be? You've been waffling on it for so long. We don't know what it is. It looks dumb. All this kind of stuff. And, and you are right to characterize it as a lot of people saying that, but I bet they would say, we haven't been waffling. We've told you exactly what we want to do. Right. I'm, ju- I'm, I'm giving but yes, the, you, the that is the question that, that hear. everyone hears. Yeah. Right. So then as somebody who's for the granary, my thought is like, well, let's get a rendering out as soon as we can to kind of quell those fears and be like, hey, this is what we're planning. Doesn't this look cool? But at the same time, because of the state of flux that things are in and this being a very preliminary rendering, I don't know that it captures the vision. And I don't know that it is going to assuage people in that way. Because when I thought, from the very beginning, I've been the type of person who's been like, well, let's wait and see. They'll probably do something cool with it. I can't wait to see what it becomes. And then to see this rendering and think like, oh, well, this doesn't look very cool. So now is my position changing. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where it's like, do you release a rendering early that maybe doesn't live up to the vision that you have? Or do you wait on it and continue to have that pressure? They are in a really tough spot, like you said, because without knowing exactly what the final decision from the city and having to be part of this larger plan, they need to move forward because everyone's saying, well, that thing is sitting there undone. When's that anything going to happen with it? It looks ugly. So if you wait for the city to figure stuff out, how long are you going to wait? So they have to move forward on some of the new design elements. How quickly can you do that? They're saying that they're hoping for a ribbon cutting and have it all done by summer of 2021, which is been pushed back, but I understand why. But if you don't release renderings, people say you have no plan. And opponents like, there's no plan. I haven't seen anything for this. Well, you're stuck. I mean, it's it's really an awkward position. One of the things that they have proposed in their press release is that maybe you could take an old railroad car and repurpose it. And that could be bathrooms or lobby facility or, or some type of facility attached to the granary, um, which would be cool because that is near the old terminus of the old Anape and Western Railway. So tie some of that history into it. You don't know what you're going to be allowed to do yet. So they can't really include that rendering as part of it or any sort of attached lobby or anything like that. They're also working within the constraints of trying to maintain its listing on the historic registry. They've run that by the State Historical Society, waiting to hear back. So what they've done is for people who have been naysayers about the granary who said, like, well, you can't do anything, you can't make any changes now that it's historic or whatever. They actually have included some windows and some other structural things to kind of make it a little more modern, but also true to its old design and possibly open it up to public being able to go to all four stories of the granary and look out at the city from it. So there's some new possibilities for it, too. That is one cool thing that I thought from the renderings of like, oh, they're showing a little bit of what might be possible with this building. So what happens here remains to be seen, but it's a step forward and it's an idea. Right. So one more story that we should talk about is the Gillsrock Shoreline proposal. Take me back to this because for some reason I'm forgetting what this is. Well, Gillsrock is a town in northern Door County. Okay, not all the way back. Let's, <laughs> let's start in the middle. Uh, was this the fishing property? Yes. So okay. up in Gillsrock last October townspeople voted to purchase three parcels on the Gillsrock shoreline for $1.6 million. They purchased it without saying, all right, we're purchasing it for X. Kind of a different approach than the town of Gibraltar is currently using, which is probably muddling the waters. I'm sorry, Gibraltar, but town of Gibraltar talking about the Redmond property said, we want to purchase this and we're going to put a UWGB satellite and affordable housing and a bike park and a neuro research station. And it's overwhelming people. And getting people tied up in all those different, oh, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do this? 
in Liberty Grove, they said, we're going to buy this property just to secure it. And then we'll figure out what to do with it. And we'll do that based on citizen surveys and citizen input. And that made it a lot cleaner. People voted overwhelmingly to buy the property and raise their own taxes to buy that shoreline property. And over the last year, they've had a few different informational sessions to gather ideas and input from people, sent a survey. They got 644 survey responses from residents and townsfolks. That's all the people who live up there in Rock, <laughs> isn't it? Well, the whole town of Liberty Grove. So that's a much larger swath. Gotcha. There are only like two people who live in Gills Rock. Right. We um, sent the survey out to 10 people. We got yeah. nine responses. Well, both of them said. So a citizens group actually took it upon themselves. I shouldn't say group. It's two gentlemen who worked with Landscapes of Place to come back with an idea. Steve Etow and Mike Barkey. Etow gave the presentation on Tuesday to the Parks and Properties Committee. It is not commissioned by the town. So this is not like an official town project plan. But it is kind of impressive that these people came forward and said, I think Steve's exact words were something along the lines of, we figured if they want town input and input from the people, the people should come up with a plan and at least give them something to base it on instead of just saying, well, like uh, a playground would be nice there. Or I want shoreline access. Well, what does shoreline access mean, right? right? Does that mean you want a boat ramp? You want a beach? You want a fishing pier? Or do you just want to be able to look at it? So they tried to get something a little more concrete and came out with a plan. It's a very loose concept plan. You're not going to look at this and say, here's exactly what this park might look like. It's, hey, a playground might go here. We'll have some natural grasses over here. We want some benches on the pier and throughout, walking paths throughout, and an open-air pavilion. And we want to keep as many of the historic fishing structures as we can to maintain that maritime feel and pay homage to the people who've been fishing there for 150 years. If anyone's ever been to Leelanau, it's in the Traverse City area that has historic fishing shacks. They've preserved them all, and it's a really cool little town. And it's got little plaques and images and history about individual fishermen from that area, which I thought was really cool. It's honoring like the working man, which is something we never really do in this country. So they've talked about putting a, a bit of that into that park and making it a public space, kayak, dock, and launch point. Just a very loose concept. There are long ways from making anything solid up there, but it's a first step. I really like that idea of the preservation and preserving those fishing structures and stuff because I haven't been to Gills Rock too much. I've probably been to Gills Rock more than a lot of people who live up here just because we go up there all the time for filming. Mm -hmm. And for the first time ever in like the five years that I've been here, I learned that there's a maritime museum in Gills Rock. I had no idea that that was the original maritime museum. But we went up there with Reese Kuzdis, who works at the Maritime Museum, and he gave us a tour and told us about the importance of fishing in Gills Rock and all this kind of stuff. Reese probably told you everything else about fishing in North yeah, County, too. Yeah, he right? is a wealth of knowledge. He, yeah. he has so many cool stories about the maritime history, both of Sturgeon Bay and of Door County. And being able to, like, go up there and see that and see, like, oh, this is a town that really is built on that in so many ways. Because, I mean, you can go to Sturgeon Bay and... It's really hard to miss the fact that it's a maritime community, but you could. I mean, if you went to Third Avenue and just partook in the shops and the restaurants and stuff like that and thought of it that way, you might not even consider the working waterfront. But Gills Rock is really one of those places that it's all about it. I mean, it really is a fishing community, and it's cool to see that so much of that is still around. Yeah, it's a cool little, little town, and, and you're right. A lot of people don't make it up there. I grew up in Egg Harbor, and I we almost never went to Gills Rock unless we had to go to the island to play Little League. But... I guess the big debate that 
people might have is like, what are they doing with that? Are they going to build a marina there? Because that has been proposed in the past. So far, I haven't seen anything that would suggest that they would. Majority of citizen surveys said that we want to keep this low-key. We want a harbor of refuge, maybe, which might mean a break wall of some size and a boat launch, but not a 100-slip marina like some have hoped for in that location because there is a big push up there to keep the development minimal. And if you put a big marina in to make that work out, you're going to have to have development around it. One thing that, that I just thought of just off of what you were talking about earlier about the different communities up here working through different things differently. It's really cool because like a lot of times at the county level, you'll look at other places to see what they're doing. But you can even look at how different places in Door County are tackling different projects and to see how different approaches work out. Because it seems like Ghost Rock is trying to really make something for its community and really take its input into consideration. And that doesn't happen in some other communities. And it happens in other communities uh, to varying degrees. But it's just really cool to see that diversity of problem solving in, well, in Door County. So much of the stuff I've covered in 15 years, it comes back to like, when does your public engagement start and how honest are you about it? Some communities talk a good game about public engagement, but then once that input comes in, they discard it or change plans without going back to the people. And plans do have to change. Like things aren't set in stone. I was on the waterfront committee in Sister Bay when that started. The final result isn't exactly what we maybe laid out at the time, but most of it is there. And when they changed it, they went back and had more public meetings because they said, well, this isn't coming through or we've decided we don't want to buy this property, that kind of thing. In Gills Rock, this property, if you go back 10 or 12 years ago, they had a different approach. They were proposing a big development first and that got out there first and then tried to go to the people and get them to vote to buy these parcels. And everyone said, no, we don't want all that. This time around, they came forward, like I said earlier, we want to buy it and we'll let you decide. And that seems to have gotten a lot more buy-in, a lot less controversy, a lot less speculation and infighting and accusations flying around. The Gay Harbor Marina, when it first came kind of top down and the village said, we, we want to build this and it's going to be this hundred slip marina and they proposed something really large, everyone said, we don't want that. We don't want to become this massive marina town. And once they paired it back, people were on board for the most part. And once they took that input, but that would have been a smoother process if they got more of that input at the start. And getting input doesn't mean you go, well, we had open meetings. Anybody could have come. You have to proactively go out and ask people through mailings, through PR, through phone calls, through one-on-one -on -one interaction. You've got to invite people to the table, especially the people that you think are going to be the biggest pain in the butt. You've got to invite them to the table early and make them part of the process. When towns don't do that, it almost always ends up in controversy, lawsuits, and crap that I really don't want to cover over and over again. What's next for the property? What's next in the process? So they're going to form a new ad hoc committee to help with the planning of that. Betty Weborg still lives in one of the homes on that property and will for more than a year. And they really can't get full access to the property and completely plan it and start major work until that comes up. And that was part of the agreement at the start is that she would get to live there until she found another place to live or the end of a certain period of time. So as Kathy Ward, the chair of the committee said, this is a long way off before anything solid happens. They haven't appropriated any funds. They haven't decided we're going to spend X dollars or borrow X dollars for this. So there's a long way to go. 
Uh, anything else from this week that we didn't cover that you want to check in on real quick before I let you get back to getting ready to bike ride? Uh, no, just uh, go pack go. Beating the Bears was fun, and we have a couple of Bears fans in our office, and I'm very happy to see them disappointed with their franchise quarterback. Great. Well, thank you, Miles, for chatting with me, and have fun at the Fall Challenge this weekend, and uh, I hope it all goes really well. All right. Thanks, Andrew. For more Door County news, interviews, and exclusive content, check us out at DoorCountyPulse.com or pick up this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse available every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast to get new episodes delivered straight to your device twice a week. Thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Mm-hmm.